0: This is Lee Stringer, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader.
1: Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkess, best selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the Ivory Tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 724 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. It's a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. Again, that's DavidBurkis.com slash 724 or text radio free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Lee Stringer. Lee is a unique breed. She blends a master's of architecture with a master's of business administration. She blends research and practice, and she was someone who I was introduced to after my book Underdue Management came out. Now, if you've read Underdue Management, you know that I unashamedly go after the open office, and I think that the costs aren't really worth the benefits of why everybody's going toward it. Lee's written an entire book, it's forthcoming, called The Healthy Workplace, that is about how does workplace design and the other things that go into designing the environment where we work, how does that actually affect how we work? How does environment affect productivity, well-being, et cetera, et cetera? It's a fascinating conversation with Lee about what goes into individual performance, how the workplace shapes what goes into individual performance, and what the optimal contributing factor for a productive work environment would be. Spoiler alert, it's perceived control. So without further ado, our conversation with Lee Stringer, I think you're really going to enjoy it and you're probably gonna understand those things you don't like about your workplace, but you can't quite put your finger on it. By the end of this interview, I bet you can put your finger on it. So who are you and what do you do?
0: I'm Lee Stringer. I'm a workplace strategist and researcher and author.
1: Okay, so let's let's dive down onto one of those first. You threw you threw out a, a word that we love the second word of, strategist, but what, what is a workplace strategist
0: and how did you decide to become one? I was trained as an architect and at some point in my career realized that I really love the business side of architecture. Understanding uh, clients and where they're coming from, organizational behavior, organizational design, and really kind of um, what goes into uh, creating a space for real people and real teams and real companies. Um, so I, I got my MBA. Um, and a Master of Architecture, and and found a way to combine those two interests in uh, working for architecture firms, doing front-end work, um, and really helping translate for clients um, what the clients need um, versus want, and how to translate that into a scope of work that designers, um, people who draw for a living, which is not me, uh, but people who draw for a living can actually actually draw and make sense. Um, so it's a lot of translating. It's taking a lot of business mumbo jumbo and um, really understanding what teams are doing and how they work and then figuring out how to design not only for what they ask for, but for what they're what they need in the future.
1: Yeah, and see, now everybody who's listening, and myself included, everybody is clued into why I was so excited to talk to you today. This, this combination of research and practice, right? The actual study of human behavior, how they interact, how we get teams to function more efficient, effectively, and in this case, the practice of architecture, which I think is, is quite, quite cool. And um, people who listen to Under New Management are familiar with my riff on open offices. Maybe we'll get into that today if we have time. Maybe we won't. But we're actually here to talk about your book, because the other thing that you mentioned you are... Is author and your your book, The Healthy Workplace. Uh, I'm going to read the whole subtitle: How to improve the well being of your employees and boost your company company's bottom line. That's a big promise, but having looked at the book, you, you kind of deliver on it. So, I mean, I guess let's let's start at that connection the the connection that we all know is there, but we all hate because we don't like our offices. Probably, this what is the sort of connection between the workplace health and how that actually ties into the bottom line?
0: So, at work, um, we are constantly trying to um, improve our game and focus on our individual work and our teamwork and physical space actually has a big impact on that. And uh, whether it's space that restricts us (laughs) and disrupts us, or whether it really accelerates uh, the work that we're trying to do. And so a lot of what this book is focused on is understanding how um, the workplace, but also just work in general, can make us more productive um, and more healthy as a result. It's interesting. Um, I found in a lot of the research, there's just a strong connection between health and productivity. When we're healthy, when we're engaged, when we're motivated, when we have the right tools around us and the right um, the right uh, impetus to uh, get our work done, we are you know good management and all the like. Uh, we are much more likely to be healthy and also productive.
1: Well, see, I think this is this is sort of something that the the Greeks had figured out a long, long time ago, this mind-body connection and the need to sort of be fit in both, that your sort of physical health, physical fitness, etc., cetera, affects your mental fitness. And especially, I mean, there was a time when for work, physical fitness meant productivity, but now we sort of, we can fall into the trap of thinking those two are separate things. But again, like the, the Greeks had it right and, and several other communities, I think that there still is a connection between the, the mind and the body. Indeed, the mind is located in the brain. Which is part of your body?
0: <laughs> well, isn't it in some Asian languages the the mind and heart are the same, or you know, the mind and body are really connected? Same word. Um oh, totally.
1: And and by the way, I I'm, I know I'm going to get a couple emails about saying the mind is located in the body from like clinical psychologists, etc. Go <laughs> ahead, send me it. I know I'll deal with it. But yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, and what's really one of the fun, fun parts of my research was um, going down to the Human Performance Institute in Orlando, which I write about a little bit. And um, this is basically people who make top athletes, who shape them. It's it's sports scientists, nutritionists, and um, psychologists who get in there, get in the heads and hearts of our top athletes, top tennis players and the like, and have really at the molecular, molecular level really looked at um, a number of things, but um, mostly energy and um, one of the things that they noticed is that um, you really need the emotional, mental, physical energy to get through the game. And those who really kept, keep those energy levels up um, and can, you know, can kind of stabilize them over time are much more likely to become top players. And uh, so now they train the corporate world, business executives, uh, on how to take those same principles um, in terms of managing their energy, but also connecting their mind, body, emotion, spirit um, and, uh, and what they do. And, uh, it's very, very effective. It was, it was, it was a pretty transformational kind of, kind of coaching. And, um, and clearly, you know, we're, we're all athletes, we're, even though we're sitting at a desk, sometimes we still have a lot to pull out every day, um, every minute of every day.
1: Well, some of us are standing at a desk because we read on some work blog somewhere <laughs> that that works better for us.
0: Well, that's true. That is true. I find I like to do a little bit of both. But uh, but yeah, it is good. Got to exercise those large large leg muscles and pump the blood through your body. Um, <laughs> some people, I you know, it's funny. Some uh, a gal I was talking to who's just starting to use a standing desk, and um, she works at home. But uh, when she's on conference calls, people can tell when she's standing versus sitting because she's more authoritative. She's more confident. She's more in tune with the conversation all that kind of stuff. I'm like, wow, busted. <laughs> it was, it's not even video calls. I can hear it in her voice.
1: I actually tell. So no so no lie. I actually tell my undergraduate students I teach a class that a part of the class is about that sort of job hunting process, the interview process, et cetera. And, you know, everybody starts with the the phone screen, right? Someone from HR calls you on the phone for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes. And I always tell them like, do those interviews standing up. You're just, your voice will sound better. You'll have more air. You won't sound as lazy and disinterested, like physically stand up and, and then smile. And believe it or not, you can tell the difference between uh, a voice when they stand up and when they smile than when, if they just sit in front.
0: Right. They're probably more likable too.
1: Yeah, totally. So I, I hinted at this earlier, but in this idea that there was a time when the body was all we needed for kind of work. I, I loved the the chapter in the healthy workplace on this sort of the evolution of work. I mean, I build uh, my most recent book, Energy Management, on the thesis that the nature of work changed. And so the nature of management changes. But I, I love that you kind of dive into the nature of work has changed over time. And that's called for a different environment, which I think most of us are probably still stuck in an office that's kind of halfway between the factory and what would be optimal but i mean maybe we start even before then but let's talk about this kind of effect of the nature of work changing and what that means for the way the environment needs to change
0: well um one of the great fun times i had researching was talking to a bunch of paleoanthropologists and one of the questions i asked them was hey you guys have studied hunter-gatherers and look at modern um, anthropological groups um you know or modern societies what what is this whole you know how many how many miles did people use to walk six million years ago you know and and how what do we people eat and all the rest, I figured, why not take it all the way back <laughs> to early days? Um, and they gave all kinds of fascinating answers. But um, it turns out that way back when, when we were hunter-gathering, you know, scavenging, we walked about eight or nine miles a day, uh, typically at a slow pace, uh, because we're doing a lot of scavenging, hunting berries and things like that, not always chasing cheetahs or whatever. Um, and we also have very wide, I'll call it the home range, which is the term that they use, but over a wide area, Right. And, uh, that whole, uh, idea of working or, or living in this just natural environment has stuck with us and it's still built in our, our our DNA, our lizard brain. Uh, we continue to use that as a framework, um, for how we relax. Um, there's an interesting, interesting study about, it's called the Savannah preference and people over, over the last hundred years have been shown different images of nature and uh, different sorts of outdoor environments and time and time again they always choose the African savanna which is fascinating whether you're from Japan or the United States if you're five years old or 95 people tend to to really like that particular environment which uh, makes psychologists very interested. They they pontificated why, but a lot of it is that you can see a predator coming from far away. You know, you can hide under the bush <laughs> or a tree, dappledly hide under dappled light, which is also um, a really uh, psychologically a wonderful place, um, a very restful state. Um, your mind gets into that restful state, and also you know there's water and views to to green things around you. And we've moved from there to farming. Uh, We've moved to farming, to factories, and from factories into the office spaces that we know and love today, which look uh, maybe one step above Cube Farms, Um, large industrial buildings or skyscrapers that have really, really deep floor plates, and we pack people in. And it's gotten so distant from the way that we lived and worked, you know, millions of years ago. And it really messes with us. It affects us psychologically. It affects our mobility, our ability to move around. Um, it affects what we eat, because we're kind of trapped often, um, looking at vending food or some not so great cafeteria options kind of stuff. And um, and all of it is affecting our creativity and our productivity as a result.
1: So, I mean, I think one of the interesting things too is just how much, you know, we're into this sort of cubicle farm Environment, But I think it's interesting, even the last 50 year shift, you know, we we went from industrial work to knowledge work. And to some extent, be, maybe because that, that knowledge work still relied on kind of paper and moving paper around, or, or what have you, we still sort of use that office, uh, the assembly line factory thing as the fundamental assumption of design for the office. But now we're kind of in a situation where I mean, really, if if you think about it and and you sort of, you know, touch on this in various places throughout the book, you said it actually offline with, do you want to design a building from the outside in or the inside out? If you start with the person and you start with uh, what individual people and teams need, there's, it would probably, the optimal solution would probably look a lot different, would it not?
0: It would. I always think, you know, I ask people to say, well, if you, what is the most productive um, place that you've worked um, it could be at home. It could be in a library, a ca- you know, coffee shop. What does that look like? And um, and what is the most inspiring place that you've worked? that just really kept you going and got you excited um, about the work that you were doing. That kind of puts you in a f- flow mindset, for lack of a better word. And it almost never is a cube farm. <laughs> if anything, it's, you know, it's a beautiful reading room in a library. It's um, sitting outside in the park. It's something probably other than a lot of these environments that unfortunately a lot of us work in. And um, and it's very, it's more organic and less in straight lines. It's uh, probably a little more dirty and, you know, or a little more, um, I don't know, uh, lived in. Then these pristine, you know, harvest table, these white desks that you see row after row with the you know perfect little Apple screens lined up and, you know, a red wall in the back. <laughs> I've seen so many, so many carbon copies of that done um, even in the last, you know, five years or so. Because it's it's clean, it's easy, it's efficient. The square foot per person numbers are very low. Yeah, I
1: was going to say it's but cheap, it, which is probably mm-hmm. the main driver of it all.
0: I mean, it looks fancy. It looks, you know, if you're a modernist designer, it looks lovely. In fact, your office at home might look like that. But for most folks, it doesn't. And so there's a real um, backlash, I think. And people are not coming into the office because they don't need to anymore. They're working at home or they're working at Starbucks or wherever. Um, and, you know, they're, they've been given this wonderful set of tools that, that help them be mobile. And that is um, causing a lot of headache for a lot of real estate managers and, and people who run businesses. Like, where are my people? Why are they not coming in every day? Uh, why do I not see them? And I see them online, but I don't see and I see their deliverables. And that's nice. But you know, I sure miss the buzz. I sure miss the the camaraderie that we have as an organization and that is slipping away For a lot of companies,
1: you know, I, I think it's interesting I, I I didn't plan on talking about this But as you as you discussed it, maybe your experience has been the same as mine so I um, About a year ago, a near where I am, a really cool co-working space opened up and I have an office, right? In fact, you know, like I have one and a half offices because we're building a house that is a home office. But I still maintain that membership in the co-working space because like there are times where that's the best environment for me. And then as I as I traveled around and started talking about. Uh, My book in the open office chapter, I met so many people who were like, yeah, you know, they described me or we'd be walking through their pristine office that you just described and like, yeah, but I also have a a membership at WeWork too, just in case I need to get away. Like it's, it's this becoming this really common thing that we used to joke about the coffee shop being it, but in an age of coworking, like there's, there's gotta be a decent percentage of people who don't actually base their business in the coworking space. They're just trying to hide there from the company they actually work for. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. And this this touches on something that, that you've written about, David, which is about choice. I think that um, there's all kinds of studies, all kinds of um, data out there that tell us that choice is good. And having the ability to work in more than one spot is, or even to sit to stand, you know, even if you have, you're, you're tethered to a piece of equipment or something, your ability to move your body around a little bit. Um, and sit and, you know, organize your, yourself and your work the way that you, um, is best suited to what you need at the time, I think is really, really important. Um, and, and really good for your health. There's this, oh my gosh, it's a great study, um, by these guys, Karasek and Theorel, who, um, who basically, uh, studied the Swedish population for 10 years. It was a huge epidemiological kind of study. And they looked at all these different job types and um, basically categorized them, I mean, everything from CEO to taxi driver to teacher to whatever. Um, and then basically had, had um, individuals rank how much choice they felt they had in their job. And the more choice people had, no matter what their career path, uh, the less likely they were to have heart disease. And the less likely they were to um, suffer psychologically. So stress, which is even, I guess, more obvious than the heart disease part. Um, and, of course, there's all kinds of productivity um, impacts to that as well. So there was less absenteeism and all kinds of markers that showed that, you know, not only is having choice good for your health, but it's good for uh, productivity and, and good all around. I think um, unlimited choice is kind of scary and intimidating uh, and not a good idea. But limited choice, I mean, you know, a selection of a few places that you could go or a few different ways to work um, or even better Um, more, more choice, um, from a management perspective on how you get your work done. Um, and a little bit of freedom there is definitely going to see, um, positive benefits on the other side.
1: Yeah. I, I love that idea of increasing autonomy, increasing perceived control. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I remember, um, Uh, There's a scene in, I feel so weird, um, lowbrowing by saying that I, I watch all of these probably the weekend they come out, but in the second Transformers, there's a really beautiful office space and each floor, it's a red wall in one, a yellow one in another, and they're like scorning this one girl because she brought a yellow cup to the red floor or something like that. I'm probably getting it totally wrong. If that's the case, you can email me about that too. Um, but I'm probably getting, but it's the whole idea of like, it's a beautiful office, but you have absolutely no choice. And I, I see the same thing in a variety of places where people are really, really proud of the attractiveness of their office, but then like they get, one picture frame with a picture of their family or their dog or or whoever, and that's the only personality they ever get to show on their workplace, and the only decisions they ever get to to make is is kind of that. Not even the sit or stand thing, and it, it really sort of underscores that it can. It doesn't mean just looking good environmentally. It, you know, it means actually one that increases that choice thing. That that sort of begs, um, I guess, my biggest question, which is how do we. Where do we go from this? If we feel like we've got too restrictive of a place, it's not allowing us to stay healthy or not allowing us to dictate um, anything about our environment. I mean, as an individual, I guess one coping strategy is buy a membership at a co-working space, but there's got to be something that's A, cheaper, and B, that maybe even as a manager you could do with your team over this. What, what kind of recommendations do you have to, to individuals and teams when they have to deal with this issue?
0: Well, one of the big um, choices that we can all make is to move around more. Um, and so, if it's if you're a manager, uh, starting to do it yourself and encouraging your team to take a walk with you for your one-on-one meeting, you know, versus sit at a desk or do it in a yet another you know conference room. Um, and uh, and those sorts of conversations are so much more rich. You know, when you're walking, talking, you're thinking about the future. You're getting. Um, you know, your adrenaline's moving, your positive vibes are kind of happening, uh, endorphins kicking in all that good stuff. And the conversations are typically better. Um, and that can happen. I work in a company with offices everywhere and I'm on the phone a lot, but I will do walking meetings on the phone all the time and take it outside, um, whenever it makes sense to do so, if it's possible, <laughs> if you work in a place that allows you to get outside and, um, And take a walk. There's always the mute button if it's a little too loud um, on a conference call. But I feel like uh, the getting outside, has. there's so much evidence around um, getting outside, particularly in the morning, which helps with your sleep later at night. Um, Psychologically, you're getting more, hopefully getting a little more green space and taking that in. Um, It's very restorative. And they say, you know, these breaks, um, gosh, if you can design your whole day moving around, fantastic. But if you could take it every hour and a half or so, um, that's really good. I've talked to a number of behavioral psychologists who say that, um, environmental psychologists who say that basically every hour and a half your brain needs to hit a reset button and – it's just like you're you know taking a class. You're, if a class goes on for two hours or if a meeting goes on for two hours, you know how your brain kind of hurts, you're like, God, I can't concentrate. We need to take a breather. And it's true that you you need to kind of absorb every about an hour and a half hour and a half, absorb what you just learned or what you're just paying attention to. Um, so take a break um, and at, you know at those points, walk around, go to the bathroom, get a cup of coffee, uh, go for a walk. Um, But use those opportunities for, for movement. Um, There's also this issue of, of choice when it comes to um, choosing how, when and where work happens. And that's really a conversation between the manager and their team. And if it's possible to have your team work in other ways, um, let them show you the ways that they might work in a different way, give them some choice and um, just be really clear about the deliverables and expectations Um, But I think management is having to manage virtually so much more now. Just being overt about expectations in a virtual world is a huge first step. And if people feel like they have a say in it, um, they're going to deliver.
1: Yeah, yeah, those are really good, really good suggestions. And again, I, I like the idea, especially of giving people a say in in that whole process, right? So even if you can't, even if as a manager, you can't, yeah, you fight up and get them to actually change any sort of environmental thing. Just inviting people into a conversation about, let's just as a team talk about how we want to do sort of our work helps with that perceived control piece uh, tremendously. So, the, the book again, The Healthy Workplace How to Improve the Wellbeing of Your Employees and Boost Your Company's Bottom Line. Lee, you know what's coming next because you uh, listen to the show, which is always awesome um, interviewing people who listen to it. So, you know what's coming next. Our five questions for Everyone, starting with one of my favorites, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: Well, I think for me, the best advice I've ever gotten was to not um, make assumptions about what clients need, to get in there and observe them firsthand. I think every time I've walked into an assignment where I assumed, you know, this is what somebody needs, whether it's their space, whether it's their workplace, whatever, Um, You know, I've been wrong. I've been proved wrong. And a lot of that um, real discovery process and what reveals itself is the physical environment itself, like walking around and seeing how people actually work and actually use their space and modifications they're making because their space is not so great are so telling. Nothing beats that sort of observation um, methodology. And I know IDEO and a lot of these um, companies, a lot of design firms are really into that because, as we know, in the built environment, it sends us so many signals. You know, what you see um, and what you can observe physically, you can really absorb so much more information than if you're just sitting behind a desk or behind a phone, you know, taking orders from someone or making assumptions. Hmm. Embed Hmm. yourself. Embed Hmm. yourself.
1: That's good. What's an average day look like for you?
0: Well, I get up around six thirty, and do I'm already have,
1: jealous of your average day. By the way,
0: <laughs> I don't have much a choice. I have school, small school aged kids.
1: Well, uh, I do too, and they wake me up at five thirty. I'm already jealous <laughs> of your your day. That's that's sorry.
0: I have late sleepers. Thank goodness, um, but I do have to kind of drag them out of bed at six thirty, and um, or shortly after. I usually do a couple emails, and then go grab them, um, get them off to school and, um, have a nice breakfast. I go for a run. I try and work out every five out of seven days a week. If I can squeeze it in, even if that means I'm going to be a little late to the office. Uh, even if it means I'm just going to have to work a little bit later in the day. Um, I found that it just makes a huge, huge difference for me. Um, not only in energy levels, but also just quality of sleep at night. And then, um, yeah, I'll, I'll get any heavy, heavy writing work done in the morning if I can swing it. Um, try to, I try to push calls in the afternoon. It doesn't always work. Um, but I try. And then in the afternoon do all the kind of tactical stuff, block and tackle stuff that work requires and, um, calls and things like that. And then in the evening, um, we'll have dinner with our kids and we try and take them to the park. And get outdoors again as much as we can. It's rained in D.C. for the last 30 days straight. So um, it's been very nice to the last week or so to be actually to go outside and have it be, you know, warmer than 50 degrees. So um, but that is something I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, how to integrate more, more outdoor time. Um, I, I would love more of it if I could squeeze it in.
1: What are you reading right now?
0: Well, I'm reading a book called Addiction by Design. I cannot remember the author, but it's about the design of casinos and how they are meticulously uh, put together to woo people, draw them in, and scarily have them gamble as quickly as possible for as long as possible. Mostly at um, you know slot machine type thing uh, type machines, but um, video gambling the like. It is fascinating i'm really interested in how the physical environment will nudge behavior so what i'm trying to do with this book anyway is literally as i read it reverse engineer it figure out all right casinos are finding ways to move people in these directions to go over to the casino area and sit for long periods of time how can we use that to reverse it and get them out of the casino and actually have have folks uh, be productive in different ways, but um, it is fascinating. It's a fascinating read. It was a great recommendation from from a colleague recently.
1: Hmm. What do you believe that most people don't?
0: When I started writing the Healthy Workplace, I fortunately had a sabbatical, and uh, I had a summer sabbatical, which I'd never taken before, but it was a wonderful experiment for me to figure out how much productivity can I stuff into a day um, if I'm writing pretty solidly. How many hours a day can I write? And I found that more than six and a half, seven hours of heavy duty writing, that was it. I mean, I was complete toast after that. And in fact, even those hours, six seven hours, I'd have to split it up every hour, hour and a half. Um, even if I was taking calls or you know doing research or interviewing people, um, I, I realized that honestly, I've got about 30 hours a week that I am productive. And beyond that, I need my brain just needs to relax. Um, so after that, I started working 30 hours a week and, uh, 32, something like that, uh, just, and have a day, um, that sometimes I'll spread throughout the week. Sometimes it's on a Friday that I just give to myself. And, um, that is time for writing and time for, for me time. And it's been so valuable. And I don't think that, I think a lot of people, I'm very lucky that I'm able to do that, I think, but I I also find that, uh, most of corporate America assumes that 60 hours a week is a very productive amount of time. And I, I find that to be absolutely untrue. Um, it's possible in the short term, but if you're in it for the long haul, it's very difficult. I think there there's some Scandinavian countries too are actually looking at the 30 hour week as kind of the ideal um, kind of work week, which I'm all for.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, I think you actually answered the question. What do you believe that most people wish they believed? But that's fine. That am sorry. No, 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 no. I'm just kidding. No, but I, no. I mean, like, I, I get you. I definitely don't think most people believe that. But gosh, I can't wait till we all do. Um, that was, that was my point. <laughs> so the final question, the title of the show is radio free leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader?
0: Someone who's not afraid to stand out in the skinny branches and try new things and potentially fail. I mean, it really comes down to that for me. I've seen so many people who are responsible for leading people, but afraid themselves to take risks and it's in the make- taking of risks that makes us as men and women that advances our civilization and we need more of it.
1: I like it. I like it a lot. So, the book again, The Healthy Workplace, the person again, Lee Stringer. Lee, where can people get a hold of you?
0: leestringer.com.
1: Oh, that's 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 so that's awesome. <laughs> you made it easy for us. So, so we'll have a link over to that, uh, also links to the book in the show notes. Um, in in the meantime, Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, David.